The word of God from Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. All together now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please uh, remain standing uh, as we just commend this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that um, without your spirit working first in our hearts, um, these precious words would land um, on the wrong kind of uh, soil. Uh, so we don't want that, Lord. We want you to work in us. We want to grow. We want to know you. We want to love you more profoundly. We want to love the world you've created. We want to love our neighbor. And uh, we need help. And so I just pray, Lord, that this, uh, these few minutes now, we would be ready and eager um, to be both hearers and doers. Come work in your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm Ronnie. Uh, so... If you're just now joining us for the first time, we are actually in the middle of a sermon series that is based on a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the very first Christians in the city of Ephesus. And um, they weren't even called Christians back then. They just were following this, the Messiah, right? This one. They were part of the way. Um, so last week, we began chapter 3. We saw how Paul kind of interrupted his own thoughts with this digression from verses 1 through 13. Uh, so like chapter 3, verse 1 starts with, um, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, and then he goes on for 13 verses. And so what happens in our text this morning is he picks back up in verse 14, and he says those words again. He says, for this reason, like, he's like, let's try this again, you know, for this reason. So he starts it back up. And then what follows is what uh, Paul longs to see in the hearts of his friends in Ephesus, right? And so we're going to notice as we study, part of Paul's prayer is actually recorded in the passage that we just heard. And this is the second great prayer that's recorded in this letter. We studied the first prayer in chapter one a few weeks ago. Um, now you can, uh, listen, you can tell a lot about a person by how they pray, right? And, and I'm not talking about how like eloquent they are or if they use all the right words. What I mean is you can tell just how desperate 
they are for God, right? You can tell if it's just a mindless exercise or if they really believe that the Lord is on the other side of the line, you know? So in this passage, Paul is like begging God to show his friends his glory and to enchant them with the sheer immensity of his love and power. And uh, what is it that kind of motivates Paul to pray like this? What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's his helplessness. And let me tell you how I know this. When I was in seminary, uh, Amanda and I just had one child at the time. We don't, what's that even like, Amanda? We don't even know what that's like anymore. Uh, uh, and just a uh, heads up, Micah. Micah, every time I do a sermon illustration, he's either dying or getting hurt. But so here we are again. Uh, true, but uh, so there I am. Micah is a little buddy. And by the time he was two years old, he was getting into everything, not unlike other two-year-olds. And uh, two-year-olds is kind of a funny stage because his head was disproportionately large for the rest of his body, right? Uh, He's a little top-heavy. That's what these uh, two-year-olds are like. And uh, the thing is, is Micah could climb. He could really climb. The problem, of course, is that his climbing outpaced his wisdom, so one day I take him out to the playground, and um, on the playground there's like kind of like a traditional slide. It's about six feet high. It's not really suitable for toddlers. And for whatever reason, because I'm kind of a bad dad, distracted dad, I get talking to someone and I look over, and about 20 feet away, Micah has climbed up to the top of this slide. It's not OSHA approved or anything. <laughs> and uh, at this point, like everything is like in slow motion. When I see him, I know what's happening. He's looking over the edge, and this top-heavy little boy falls headfirst over the slide. And I start running towards him, but here's what I know immediately. I can't help him. I want to help. I would do anything to help him, but I am watching this painful accident happen, and I can't do anything about it. And you know what I felt? Helplessness. Just as an aside, if you're listening to this at home, my, my son's fine. Just a trip to the ER because I'm a bad dad, but whatever. He survived it. But I felt helpless. That is actually what the Apostle Paul feels for the, the believers in these Ephesian churches. Why? See, Paul is in jail. He wants to be there for them. But he knows he's on death row, right? He'll probably never see them again. He wants something for them that he can't do himself. And so in this prayer, Paul is begging God to get a hold of them. He's saying, God, you have to do what I am unable to do. See, here's the thing is that they're new believers. And although they believed the gospel the gospel didn't quite have a full hold on them. You know, it's kind of like, um, maybe you can think about it like this. It's like a kid who kind of grew up in the foster system. Maybe he's in and out of foster homes or in and out of orphanages. Uh, he, this is a kid who kind of learns how to take care of himself, independent. He's dependent on nobody, right? And at one day when he's 15 years old, you adopt him. You adopt this boy. The judge rules. This boy is legally yours. But do you think that boy woke up the next morning feeling any different than he had the 15 years prior? 
Do you think that his heart just simply was at peace with security? Of course not. It's that the reality of this new relationship would have to get a hold of him at a, deep, at a deeper level. Right? Y'all see how that works? This is what Paul sees too. Paul is praying for, uh, for them that, that this reality of the gospel would get a hold of them on that deeper level. They, uh, the believers in Ephesus had the gospel, but the gospel didn't fully have them. Does that sound familiar, anyone? Does that sound familiar? Can you guys see why we study these ancient texts and just say, Lord, speak to me? I long for the gospel to just seize our hearts, family, here in, like in a new way. I wish that's what Denver Prez, well, that's the fragrance I want in this church. I, I want God to do something for us that I can't do for us as your pastor, however much I want. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to study the passage we just heard. We're going to look at the anatomy of it, and hopefully it will just begin to shape us and form us. Uh, Paul wants to expand our perception of this thing we call the love of God. And he's going to do that by kind of employing these kind of tensions or these poles uh, to kind of help us push the limits of what God's love uh, can do in us. And what are these tensions? And here's two, if you're a note taker, here are the two ways. On one hand, we're going to look at God's love as a, both a microscope and a telescope. And then we're going to look at God's love again, uh, both in its transcendence and its imminence. And we'll kind of learn what those words mean. So let's begin with God's love as a microscope and a telescope. So in this letter... Paul is talking to Christians. And the essence of this prayer is summed up in verse 16. Look there. That they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in their inner being. And then it goes on in verse 19. That they would know, that they would know the love of Christ. So strengthened by knowing the love of Christ. Now shouldn't, I mean, they're Christians, right? Shouldn't they already know the love of Christ? Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. They had the love of Christ. They had it, but it didn't have them. So they needed it to be saturating their bones, right? Now, listen, there's knowing, and then there's knowing. You know, uh, when we were in the sermon series on Hebrews, I introduced you guys these Spanish words that help us understand the complexity and the nature of knowing um, so in Spanish, there are these two words for the verb to know. It's saber and conocer. Y'all remember this? So both of these words mean to know, but they, they, there's a different kind of knowing. So you would use the word saber to uh, say that you know about something, right? We uh, can look at a map and we can say uh, we know about the Caribbean Sea, even if you've never seen it before, Right? But if you put your feet in that hot sand and jump in that cool blue water, then you're going to know the Caribbean Sea in a different way. And if that's the case, then you have to use a different word in Spanish. It's conocer, because it's an intimate knowledge. It's a, a salty knowledge, right? Now listen, both kinds of knowledge are important. You know, by looking at a map, in some ways, you're, you're benefiting from the experiences of like, millions of people, right? 
Uh, of course, it's just a piece of paper, but it's a necessary piece of paper to get your brain around like the contours of the whole Caribbean Sea. But that map won't help you fall in love with the beaches, right? But this reality, both of these realities are present in Paul's prayer. So I call it the tension of the microscope and the telescope. So with a microscope, uh, you look at a thing and you analyze it right under the lens and you might even poke it and prod it. Uh, You're going to examine it. As As the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians, he describes and he gives a map for the love of God. He, he wants them to know the contours of the sea of God's love, right? Look at verse 18. Paul wants them to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. Now, when, when Paul speaks about the breadth of God's love, he's, he's alluding there to the mystery of the gospel, right? We've been talking about this, uh, this mystery that Jews and Gentiles, like, Perfect opposites and enemies are, are, are united in this profound love, and every race now has this direct access to God through Jesus. And so there's no more barriers. You don't have to be a certain kind of person in order to be welcomed into the people of God, right? God, God's love is broad. There's a breadth to it. And then Paul talks about the length, right? And so the map gets bigger. And, and the length is speaking to this notion of time. Like, when did God's love for you begin? It's before your love for him. Like, while you're still a rotten, hostile cynic, God's love is upon you. Indeed, before the heavens and the earth were created, before time itself, his love was fixed in his own heart for you. And how high is God's love? How high is God's love? You know, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he's going to say, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Well, where's Jesus now? He's exalted on the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father. His love reaches high into this new exalted dimension of glory, Glory unseen to our eyes. And what about the depth? How deep is God's love? It's as deep as hell. And this is, we have this ancient creed that we'll pray together, right? The Apostles' Creed. It's going to say that Jesus descended into hell. Jesus, in other words, took hell upon himself to have you. Our hell-deserving sin would be placed on Jesus as he Hung on the cross. Are you starting to see like the scope, the map of God's love? It's breadth and width and height and depth. Time and space are not obstacles to God's love. But even as we describe this love, it can feel like a microscope love, right? We, we look at it, we, we describe it, we, we analyze it, but it's just a map. It's an important map. But it's a map. But Paul wants for these Ephesians, what he wants is what I want, really. I want us to jump into the salty sea and, and to feel God's embrace, his loving embrace. I want you to have an intimate experience with God's love. But how would you know? Well, instead of looking at God's love with a microscope, well, let's turn it into a telescope. 
Because when you're looking through a telescope, uh, you can't manage or prod the thing that you're looking at, right? All you can do is gaze and admire. You are actually under the thing that you're looking at. That's the basis of Paul's description of the love of God. When, when he looks at God's love, it's not, it's not this intellectual exercise. It's not a map. It is knee-buckling beauty. Right? Look at, look at verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knee. A better translation would be I bend my knee. Now, bending knees, that sounds semi-normal to us. If you read the commentaries, you know what they'll tell us? That, that kneeling was not a custom for Jewish men. I mean, if you, if you could think about like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, uh, what you would see are all these Jewish men right near the wall. This is Israel's most holy site, and they're praying emotively, right? And they're rocking. Uh, what, what are they doing? They're standing and rocking, but they do not kneel. So why does Paul fall on his knees? It's because he's encountered something categorically different that just dropped him to his knees, right? His heart buckled. He came under God's love. He didn't just look at it. He, he, you can't manage and prod this love. It's a love that controls him, controls us. The love of God is not just an ingredient that God uses to make you happy or sentimental. You know, C.S. Lewis, he says, he says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. That's, uh, that's different than sort of therapeutic Christianity. God's love is like jumping into the sea, but it's a raging sea, to be warned. God's love is jealous. It's formative. You bend your knee because it comes to rule and to take up residence in your heart. Going back to C.S. Lewis, he says in Mere Christianity, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed to be done. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. Oh, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and to live in it himself. God's love does something to us. Look at verse 20 and ask yourself, is God's love at work in us. You see how it says at work in us? Like it says in that verse. As Paul prays, he uses a microscope to kind of map out God's love, and we need that. 
But it's in the context of this telescope love where we're gazing at something that we have no control over. We are under it. God's love is this raging sea. And so we bend and bow before it. We, we let it blow out walls and roofs of our soul. We allow God just to do this whole new construction. We know God's love. But do you truly know it? There's knowing and then there's knowing. You have it, but does it have you, right? This is where he begins, so that's the first tension. Let's consider one more tension that Paul uses to kind of help us understand the love of God. Um, And and I'm going to use the language of transcendent and imminent. Um, Transcendent, like beyond the material world, and imminent, deeply present in it. Uh, like, I, you know, I keep using C.S. Lewis. I've read almost everything C.S. Lewis ever read. So here, let me just, would y'all let me just do one more C.S. Lewis illustration? Um, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this character, his, is the great lion. His name is Aslan. And Aslan is kind of like a Christ figure. So in the second to last book in, the, in those Chronicles, it's, there's a book called Silver Chair. And Aslan uh, is, is this towering lion having a conversation with this little girl named Jill. Listen to this brief excerpt. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at the motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. And yet this delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. She was thirsty. Well, would you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise said the lion. Now Jill was thirsty, really thirsty. Without noticing, though, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. What a scene. I love what, how like, C.S. Lewis characterizes Aslan, this great lion. Because on one hand, like, you want to hug him, right? He's the most beautiful and wise beast ever created in fiction. But at the same time, my goodness, he is a lion. There's this weightiness, this unquantifiable glory and terror with him. This is a character that will not be trifled with, Right? There's this holy fear that comes over all who meet his acquaintance. He's not like anyone or anything. And in Paul's prayer, 
you get a sense of this too. There's this quantifiable transcendence of God. Look there in verse 19. Paul says, the love that we're talking about is the kind of love that surpasses knowledge. You see that? It surpasses knowledge. It means, it means you can't get your brain around this one. Even though you're smart, elitist, intellectual Denverites, right? You don't have the intellectual categories to understand God. You can study it your entire life and get nowhere near. He continues in verse 20. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or all that we even think, right? This is like kind of hard to imagine. Like what, what is he alluding to? What is Paul alluding to? Well, maybe I could illustrate it like this. Imagine there's a, a one-dimensional world, right, with line figures. And they're all looking at each other, but it's one-dimensional. And so they just look like horizontal lines. And uh, one day, a gust of wind comes and picks up one of those figures. And we're going to call him Bob. Now, Bob is looking down at his friends, and he realizes that they're not all horizontal lines, but there's circles and squares and, and rectangles. And so Bob comes back down and says, guys, you're not going to believe this, but we're not all lines. Uh, Sally, you're a circle, and Fred, you're a triangle. But what happens? The friends are like, Bob, like, what are you even talking about? I mean, I don't even understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. What, what, I, what is a circle? What is a triangle? I have no frame of reference to even interpret what you're saying to me. I have no imaginative categories that could even help me understand those words. See, no amount of explanation is going to help them perceive a realm that they have no access to. It's just gibberish. It's like saying five plus blue equals sour. Like... What? It's gibberish. Listen, even this trite little anecdote it, it, it is like, it's, it's trite compared to this, this like incomparable, it's surpassable knowledge of God. Like we literally don't even have categories to perceive what this could even mean. It is a knowledge that we can't even know that we don't know. Are you seeing that? The transcendence of God ought to put a profound fear of him in us. It leaves us breathless, you see. But here's the thing. Paul describes the transcendence of God, but in the context of his imminence. And when I say that, I mean that like God is not far off. He's near. He's intimate. In verse 14, Paul says, he says, I, be I bend my knee before who? Before the Father. So in other words, the transcendent God is this intimate Father who's like near. And in fact, in verse 15, it says, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Like everyone even finds their origin in him. He is a present Father who provides for their every need. He's not removed. He's not dancing on clouds, wearing togas and hurling lightning bolts at us, right? No. He is strengthening you, verse 16, with his spirit in your inner being. That's how near he is, in your inner being. And let me explain why this is so striking. Paul's writing from a jail cell. Like he's super aware of his limits, 
Like he can't actually do anything for his brothers and his sisters. And yet, strangely, Paul feels completely free. He is freer than he ever was before the chains were put on him. Why? Because he can pray an intimate prayer, confessing his limits to his Father in heaven who is limitless. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes it like this in his commentary. He says, the enemy can confine Paul to a cell. He can bolt and bar doors. He can chain him to soldiers. He can put bars in the windows. He can hem him in and confine him physically, but he can never obstruct the way from the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is close enough that you can take your limits and your helplessness to the limitless God? Remember how I began this this sermon, right? Slow motion, running to try to help my son from falling. I was helpless. There is a uh, kind of helplessness that haunts all of us. Uh, And to cope because it's so present, like our helplessness is so present to cope, we just stop trying, right? We, we grow passive about things in our life that need to change. We say dumb things like, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or we say, well, I've just always been like this. This is just who I am. And you justify your life that way. Listen, that's wrong. You can change. You can change. And you can grow. And Paul would said, but you have to let the love of God, this raging sea of love, do business with you. I know you have it, but does it have you? All right, let me just quickly conclude. I'm going just a little bit long, but I, uh, Paul, Paul doesn't want, uh, Paul wants the church not just to feel and understand the love, he wants this love to take over, right? He, he wants it to shape and to, to form believers, right? Um, in, the, in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, Jesus is going to say these words. He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. He says, I know, there's that word again, I know my own and my own know me and I'll lay my life down for the sheep. So when Jesus says, I know my own, he's not just talking about a map. He's not just talking about intellectual knowledge. He's talking about something that is breathtakingly romantic. What an appropriate text on this Valentine's weekend. I, uh, I'm doing pre-marriage counseling uh, with Jeff and Kaylee, and we're kind of working through the service, and uh, we've talked about how the climax of a wedding service are these vows that they take when they grab each other's hands and look into each other's eyes, and they make promises to each other. And you've been to weddings, and if you listen carefully, vows are made in the future tense, right? Uh, I promise to, uh, I promise to take you to be my wife or to be my husband. I, I will love you for richer, for poorer, 
and sickness and health and joy and sadness until death do us part, right? I will do these things. I promise to do these things. So listen, when a couple takes these vows, they're not saying, I love you today. Like everyone knows that. That's why they're there. That's why we're having a wedding, right? Uh, What they're saying is we will love each other even though we don't know what the future holds. And love shapes choices. Now listen, however much a couple thinks they know each other on their wedding day, in reality, it's super naive, right? I've done this a few times. Whenever a couple gets married, they barely know each other. And not only does the couple not know each other, they certainly know nothing about what the future is going to bring them. And yet, there they are, making vows without perfect knowledge. And do you know why this is so romantic? It's because when this couple is staring into each other's eyes, what they're really promising is this, is that when I find out truly what you are like, I'm not going to leave. I'm staying. And and whenever you find out what I'm like, truly, you're staying. And no matter what happens, when we see each other for what we really are, we're staying. Love is supposed to form you and shape you, not just be an emotion. Indeed, that's what we see in God's heart first. But the difference is, is God does have comprehensive and perfect knowledge. God knows you comprehensively. He knew every stupid thing you've ever done in your life. He knows every stupid thing you're going to do in the future. And he's saying, I'm staying. I'm staying. I'm going to hang on a cross for you. God's love is not sentimental. He allowed his love to move him into action for you. And when God's love is deeply pressing, press, pressing into your bones and present in your life, when it's taking residence up into your body like a home, you must expect that he's going to blow out some walls. But he's going to do it precisely because he's nuts about you. Because he loves you. And I know, listen, I know God's love can be unnerving, but it's only unnerving if it's real. I know it's alarming, but God's love shapes and forms. And so doing, it gives you a security and a freedom and a greatness like you've never experienced. It's limitless. You're not helpless when you're connected to the love of God because he is limitless, as is his love for you. Amen? Amen.